Welcome to The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Listen to Joe tackle the really tough moral issues, current events, and politics from a Catholic perspective. Now here's Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Hello again, Sixpack Warriors. Welcome back to The Cantankerous Catholic, episode 155. Christmas is this week, so I wanted to say a few words as a Christmas greeting to all of you six-pack warriors. I also want to talk to you about a personal struggle that will probably hit home for some of you. The China virus lockdown suspended mass across the country. When restrictions were lifted, few Catholics returned to mass. Why? Because no matter how you slice it, American Catholics simply don't know our faith. In two different EWTN surveys of Catholics conducted in November of 2019 and February of 2020 respectively, 86% said that their religion is very important to them. Yet 82% reject at least one Catholic doctrine, 41% never go to confession, 61% don't attend Mass regularly, 70% don't believe in the real presence, 84% believe abortion should be illegal, and 55% agree with euthanasia. Clearly, American Catholics are completely or almost completely ignorant of the Catholic faith. If they weren't, these figures wouldn't be so dismal. Despite their lack of knowledge, it's nearly impossible to interest them in catechesis they need so desperately. Well, I've got a remedy for that. Introducing the What We Believe, Why We Believe It bulletin inserts, which are endorsed by Raymond Leo Cardinal Burke. Everyone reads the Sunday bulletin, and these bulletin inserts provide a thumbnail catechism lesson that is anything but typically boring catechism. They not only tell readers what the church believes, but why the church believes it. In the parishes where these bulletin inserts are already being used, parishioners love them. I know because I get emails every week telling me so. If you're a parish priest, you can get three months of what we believe, why we believe it to try it out for free. 
some laity get subscriptions for their parishes as well. To learn more, click on the link in my show notes that says Six-Pack System Bulletin Insert. It just requires 11 minutes of your time to see the video. This episode comes out three days before Christmas begins, so I want to convey a Christmas message. In case you haven't noticed, I'm not the kind of guy who gets all gooey and sentimental. After all, I'm known as the cantankerous Catholic for a reason. But that doesn't mean I'm lacking in emotion. I think this is the perfect time to tell you how I feel about you six-pack warriors. First, I want to tell you that I view each and every one of you as family to me. You come back week after week and listen to this broken-down old man, and I very deeply appreciate it. I'm privileged, honored, and humbled to have the very best audience in the entire Catholic podcasting world. Thank you. There are four things that I especially appreciate about you six-pack warriors. First and foremost, you initially began listening to this show because you love the Catholic Church. In fact, I think that you probably love her as much as I do. The second thing that I appreciate about you is that you obviously want to learn and understand more about the Church, which is obviously why most of you keep coming back every week. That you care that much about our holy and ancient faith has earned you a very, very special place in my heart. After all, nothing matters more. The third thing about you I appreciate is your love for this country. We may not even be the United States of America this time next year, but it won't be because you haven't joined in the fight to preserve our great democratic republic. Many of you are veterans, and I thank you for your service. But I also thank you for the way you've honored me for my service. I've read those emails, and I thank you for them. The fourth thing I deeply appreciate is your generosity. When I asked you to help my Nigerian Catholic friends Patrick and Emmy Becky, you leapt up and grabbed the chance to help them. They're still suffering and facing hard times, and I'll be asking you to help them again in January. I'm working with a U.S. senator to try to get them into America, and they're prime candidates for asylum because of the persecution they face and because they're both college-educated professionals. In the meantime, at least at the moment, they're safe. You've also very generously helped me. I work all alone in this apostolate. I don't do it for the money. Good thing, too, because I'd starve if I depended on this apostolate to feed me. I not only host this show, but I have a weekly column in The Wander, one on Church Militant, write a weekly Sunday bulletin insert for parishes, host weekly webinars, and write books. I don't make a dime from any of it. Full Disclosure Last week, I was invited by a website called Catholic365.com to write weekly for them. I understand that they intend to pay me, but I don't know how much. It doesn't matter, though, because it will all go back into this apostolate. Anyway, when I told you in November that I would run a shortfall of about $10,000 by year's end, you very quickly and generously bailed me out. It costs about $25,000 a year to operate this apostolate, but the COVID lockdowns last year caused me to have the shortfall this year. I'm hoping that I don't have to ask you for money again, but I may. 
And I especially thank those of you who've committed a monthly gift to this apostolate. You really have no idea how much that helps because it allows me to count on money that I can budget. I get about 100 emails a day from you and my readers. Most don't get answered because they're attaboys for what I do. However, I do take the time to answer each and every question that comes in. You deign to take the time to listen to this show, so the least I can do is answer your questions. During the last year, we've had interviews with Raymond Leo Cardinal Burke, Terry Barber, Michael Voris, Michael Hitchborn, and Stephen Brady, to name a few. Some of those people will be back on the show in 2022. We're also going to have other great Catholic luminaries on the show next year. If you have any suggestions for guests on the show, don't hesitate to reach out to me and make those suggestions. Something else I'm planning to do in 2022 is to help you in a more tangible way. I'm inundated with people wanting me to promote this thing or that thing. Of course, none of them seem to want me to promote things badly enough to buy commercial time, but that doesn't mean that the things they want me to promote aren't good. When something looks good, I try it out. The things I like, the things that help me, I'm going to pass along to you. You can take it or leave it, I'm just trying to help. These damnable lockdowns have changed the way we earn money in America, too. Some of you are fortunate enough to work from home on your computers. Others of you lost your jobs out there because of the lockdowns or your refusal to get the jab. And finding another job isn't hard to do, but it seems that most of the open positions are contingent on taking the jab. So I've been doing a ton of research on ways you can earn a living from home and not worry about the jab. Here's what I'm planning to do for 2022. If I can figure out how to use the software I had to buy, which wasn't cheap and I'll happily accept help from you techies, I plan to add a members area to my site. It'll have gads of videos, reports, and ebooks on how to earn money online legally and ethically. I also plan to add some Catholic video courses to the members area. Once again, if you're a techie and you're willing to donate some time, I'll sure let you help me build this members area. So those are the things I admire about you six-pack warriors and the things I'm planning for 2022. Merry Christmas to you. Now I'd like to talk to you about something that's taken on a whole new perspective for me, and I very strongly suspect that it'll hit home for some of you. When people marry, they're usually young. Assuming they take traditional wedding vows, they vow to remain married whether for better or worse, richer or poor, in sickness and in health. Youth tends to be forever optimistic, as it should be, so young people getting married never once think about worse or poor or sick. That's certainly understandable because they're only thinking about all of the possibilities, hopes, and dreams that they face for the future. Prior to becoming a Catholic, I'd sired four sons. I was never married to their mothers. I actually never married until I was in my 50s, and my bride was 18 years older than I. When I made those traditional vows, I was certainly thinking worse, poor, and sickness. 
After all, I was no longer young, and life had taught me that it can be very harsh. Apparently, I was right to be considering worse, poor, and sickness. Being the sort of man that I am, my wife has certainly seen me at my worst because of my fiery temper. Poor kicked in when we were the victims of identity theft and lost about a half million dollars, failing to recover a penny of it. Then the sickness kicked in. The stress of losing everything we had caused me to have a debilitating stroke, and my wife had both a heart attack and a pulmonary embolism. But that's only where the sickness part began, and I can tell you it tests a man's mettle. After everything that happened to us, I began to witness a decline in my wife's cognitive abilities. I read somewhere that a traumatic event can sometimes be the impetus for dementia. That appears to be true, at least in my wife's case. She hasn't yet begun to forget who I am, but she can't remember the day, month, or year, and she asks me the same questions as many as four times in an hour. She gets confused when trying to do something as simple as making a pot of coffee. She sometimes stops in mid-stride because she can't remember what she was doing. My wife was one of the most competent and capable women I've ever known when we married. She'd always taken care of the finances and paid the bills. All I did was earn an income, take physical care of our property, and ate and slept. Now I do almost everything. Though I'm permanently in a wheelchair while she's ambulatory, she's almost completely dependent on me. My wife and I chastely dated for 13 years before we married. We built a lot of great memories both while dating and after we were married. Her happiness is all that's really ever meant anything to me. Her favorite singer was the late George Jones. For her birthday a few months before Jones died, I surprised her by taking her to a George Jones concert in Branson, Missouri, with the best seats in the house. I don't remember any of the show, because I just sat there watching my beloved wife transform into a 17-year-old girl again. Her glowing happy face is what I most remember when this awful disease tries my patience. And no matter what happens, I'm resolved that my wife and I will be together in this house until one of us is gone. Probably her first. At least I hope so, because she'd be completely lost without me. She certainly realizes that she has a problem. When it causes her anguish, she'll sit on my lap in the wheelchair and cry while I hold her. In the insecurity caused by the dementia, she often asks me while I'm holding her to please not put her away. I tell her that we'll always be together, no matter what, while I hide my own tears. I do truly love my wife. We live in a very disposable society. Virtually everything can be tossed into the trash today. Two things that are commonly disposed of today that should never be disposable are life and marriages. The divorce rate in this country continues to be 50% if people today even bother with marriage. The Catholic divorce rate reflects the national rate. When Catholic couples run into a problem, it's easier to dispose of the marriage than to fight to keep it together. That's so sad to me because it demonstrates how selfish and narcissistic Catholics have become. They seem to be no different than the prevailing culture. Marriage, a sacramental marriage, 
is all about two people becoming one flesh. They're one body together. Apparently, modern Catholics don't realize that because they're notorious for not reading the Bible. If you got an ugly and embarrassing rash on your hand that had a terrible smell and the very sight of it repulsed others who saw it, would you cut off your hand to be rid of it? That's what divorce implies, you know. No, you'd do anything and everything you could to cure the problem causing that repulsive rash. You'd work at making things normal again until you either solved the problem or simply learned how to live with it, right? Then why in the world would any rational human being divide his or her flesh because the marriage developed a repulsively ugly, odorous rash? I'll never be able to fix this ugly, repulsive rash called dementia, but where would either my wife or I be if I decided to divide our flesh to be rid of it? No, marriage is forever. The summation of those traditional marriage vows is to face all of the good and the bad until death do us part. There are people listening to this right now who are considering divorce, or your marriage has lost all of the magic that made you tie the knot in the first place. Please work, fight to fix the problem. Don't sever your own flesh. Trust me, it's worth the fight to save your marriage and it does require a warrior spirit to fight for it. I know this from personal experience. Don't be a coward. Fight. Don't forfeit what should be held and cherished as your greatest possession in this life. Have you ever really explored the Cantankerous Catholic website? Did you know that I have six of my own books available there? Did you know that I have t-shirts, sweatshirts, and coffee mugs available? You can accomplish three things when you buy some of my swag. Your purchase helps to support this apostolate, you'll have something to display that says you're a six-pack warrior, and you'll look just plain cool. How many Catholic apostolates can make you look cool? Click on the Joe's Stuff tab at cantankerouscatholic.com today. Let the world know you're a cool six-pack warrior. Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy, wants to make sure you're informed about all the Catholic news you need to know. Here's Joe Sixpack's top five Catholic news picks for this episode. Catholic news pick number five. Hats off to Fox News. Senator Joe Manchin said he's opposed to pretender Biden's $2 trillion climate change and social spending bill. This is a no on this legislation, said Manchin. I just can't. I've tried everything humanly possible. I can't get there. Manchin cited the skyrocketing 6.8% inflation in November and the nation's $27 trillion debt as factors. Left-wing Democrats decried Manchin for derailing pretender Biden's agenda. I'll be damned. A Democrat with a conscience. That's what I'm talking about. 
You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic News Pick Number 4 Hats off to Catholic Culture The Congregation for Divine Worship released a document Saturday that further restricts the traditional Latin Mass. As summarized by Catholic World News, the Congregation ruled that a priest who celebrates Mass in the ordinary form on a weekday cannot also celebrate the traditional Mass on the same day that a diocesan bishop requires Vatican approval before giving permission for a newly ordained priest to use the traditional rite, and that any celebration of the traditional Mass in an ordinary parish cannot be incorporated into the regular parish schedule. What? You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic Catholic News Pick pick number three. Hats off to Breitbart. Former President Donald Trump argued that China should have to pay reparations for the spread of COVID-19 across the world. They came out of the Wuhan lab, and I think if anybody thinks anything differently, they're just kidding themselves. So you can ask, China has to pay. They have to do something. They have to pay reparations, Trump told Fox News. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic News Pick number two. Hats off to the Institute for Family Studies. Researcher Lyman Stone noted that today more than 70% of marriages are preceded by cohabitation. One effect is that it delays marriages. But what most young adults do not know is that cohabitating before marriage, especially with someone besides your future spouse, is also associated with an increased risk of divorce, said Stone. He added, religious 20-somethings who married directly without cohabiting appear to have the lowest divorce rates. I like that. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic Catholic News Pick pick Number number 1 Hats off to the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. Two sets of Wisconsin parents are suing the Kettle Moraine School District for their policy which affirms minor students' gender transitions even over the parents' objections. Schools cannot override parents when it comes to decisions about their children. Gender identity transitions are no exception. Schools must defer to parents about what is best for their child, said Deputy Counsel Luke Berg of the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, which is partnering with the Alliance Defending Freedom in the suit. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. I am hard, but I am fair. It's time for the Catholic Boot Camp with your drill sergeant, Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Learn the Catholic faith and how to defend it like you've never heard it before. This boot camp is tough, so there's no political correctness, no spirit of Vatican II, and no namby-pamby platitudes. Drill Sergeant Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy, will prepare you for spiritual war. Now here's Joe Sixpack. Pack. 
I realize by now many of you are saying, no, not communion in the hand again. Yes, communion in the hand again. And it's going to continue being communion in the hand for another five weeks. Why? Nearly everyone in this listening audience receives communion in the hand. That's all you've been taught. Because that's all you've been taught, you probably think it's acceptable and that the church approves. Not so. The evil men who infiltrated the hierarchy lied to us. There have been a lot of unauthorized changes to the Mass liturgy that you were told was a result of changes called for by Vatican II. The priest facing the people instead of God, the abolition of Latin, guitars for music at Mass, and so on. Yes, Paul VI gave us the Novus Ordo Mass, but he didn't give us all the crazy changes in the way Mass was to be said. Men like then Bishop Joseph Bernardin lied to us when he was General Secretary of the Bishops' Conference. Because communion in the hand is so evil, it's the biggest case file Simon Rafe has. Since I want six-pack warriors to have everything you need on this topic, with the hope that you'll stop your own use of the communion in the hand, once again Simon will tell you the truth of the matter. There are too many lies in the world. It's hardly surprising, of course. Satan is both the prince of this world and the father of lies. But it's always disheartening to hear lies, especially about something or someone you love. Lies about Jesus Christ and his spotless bride, the church, for example. Now, I'm not talking about the falsehood Protestants spread about the Catholic Church, although, of course, those are very painful, very harmful, and very dangerous. I'm talking about lies spread by people in the church, men who are sworn to uphold her teachings, but for whatever reason, witting or unwitting, have become agents of darkness, attacking her from within. It can be very difficult sometimes for faithful Catholics to challenge these lies. The people spreading them seem to have all the answers, and everyone seems to believe them. It seems to make all kinds of sense. I mean, if this is what everyone thinks, and when we look around the world, it all seems to match up, then I suppose it could be true, right? Don't believe everything you're told, especially about what a pope might have thought, done, or said. We're all familiar with Pius XII, who was pope during World War II and the years afterwards. His reputation has been dragged through the mud. He's been called indifferent to the plight of the Jews during the Holocaust, a coward, and even a Nazi collaborator, and worse. And of course, not a word of that is true. But there's another pope who, like Pius, sat on the throne of Peter during a major historical event and led the church through the aftermath. That event was the Second Vatican Council, and that pope was Paul VI. Now, a lot has been said about the Second Vatican Council, about the liturgical changes it supposedly called for, and which Paul VI encouraged and pushed through. Now, if you've been following these cases, you'll know that none of that is true. There are 16 documents of the Second Vatican Council, one of them, Sacrosanctum Concilium talks about the liturgy, and it says nothing about guitar masses, spinning the altar around so the priest turns his back on God, or using the vernacular language in the Mass. In fact, Sacrosanctum Concilium actually calls for Latin to be retained, and Gregorian chant and the pipe organ to be given place of preference in the liturgy. Don't believe me? Read the document yourself. But that is what the agents of darkness who have summoned up this non-existent ghost, the spirit of Vatican II, are relying on you not to do. They would rather you just sat quietly, meekly, in the pews, nodding your head and accepting without question what they tell you Vatican II called for. And it's much the same with Pope Paul VI and communion in the hand. Conventional wisdom is that the Second Vatican Council and Paul VI called for communion in the hand, and that seems to make sense. After all, it was shortly after 
Vatican II that the practice started. Paul VI was Pope then. He was elected in 1963 in the middle of the council and died in 1978. That was when communion in the hand flourished, when treacherous, behind closed doors, machinations pushed it through. Surely if it happened, the Pope had to be on board with it, or at least okay with it, right? Not so. Paul VI wasn't the liberal, unorthodox hippie, eager to, eager to change everything many people make him out to be. After all, this was the man who wrote Humanae Vitae, the landmark encyclical doubling down on and defending the church's perennial teaching on contraception in the face of the staunchest and most concerted opposition she'd ever faced, both from within and without the body of Christ. The true history of communion in the hand isn't the one its proponents would like you to believe. It started out as an abuse, a defiance of not only tradition, customs, but also church law in Holland, Holland and Belgium in the 1960s. The illegal practice was influenced by the publication of the Dutch Catechism in 1966. This so-called Catechism was published by the bishops of those countries and was full of heretical errors about the Eucharist. Of course, this just proves the maxim. Lex credendi, lex orandi, lex vivendi. The law of belief is the law of prayer is the law of life. If you don't really believe the Eucharist is Jesus, the liturgy will reflect that, with practices like communion in the hand, or receiving the Eucharist standing, or God forbid, things like communion for the divorced and remarried, public grave sinners, or even having communion open to non-Catholics. Don't believe me? Haven't you seen the news today? What the heirs of the 1960s agents of darkness are promoting in the parishes and dioceses of the world, even in the halls of the Vatican itself? Paul VI was not a prophet with a crystal ball. He didn't have a time machine. He was simply a wise and holy man who could see where this was going. And so, in 1965, a year before the Dutch Catechism hit the streets, he wrote Mysterium Fidei, an apostolic exhortation which, well, exhorted us to be more aware of the real presence of Jesus Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist. Come in. Meals here. Oh, thanks, John. You're welcome. The Pope didn't pull any punches. He reached back through the whole history of the church, gathering statements from fathers and doctors, saints, theologians, and our blessed Lord himself to clearly show what the church teaches about the Eucharist. That, well, let's let Paul VI's words speak for themselves. The sacrament in which those who participate in it through Holy Communion eat the flesh of Christ and drink the blood of Christ, and thus receive grace, which is the beginning of eternal life, and the medicine of immortality, according to our Lord's words, the man who eats my flesh and drinks my blood enjoys eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. But the Pope's goal wasn't simply to restate the central doctrine of the Church that the Eucharist is really, truly, and substantially the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, the source and summit of our faith. There are plenty of places to find that, plenty of documents which say that, even though perhaps not all Catholics believe it or know it. Paul VI's desire wasn't just to fight the falsehoods of the Dutch Catechism, which was coming down the pike, but also to fight the things that would result from the heretical catechism. In paragraph 9, he lays out his reasons for exhorting the faithful. There are a number of reasons for serious pastoral concern. Some of those who are dealing with this most holy mystery in speech and writing are disseminating opinions on the dogma of transubstantiation that are disturbing the minds of the faithful, and causing them no small measure of confusion about matters of faith. And he also says something referencing the Second Vatican Council that might surprise you. 
And so, with the aim of seeing to it that the hope to which the Council has given rise that a new wave of Eucharistic devotion will sweep over the Church not to be reduced to nil through the sowing of seeds of false opinions, we have decided to use our apostolic authority and speak our mind to you on this subject. Remember, the Second Vatican Council was still going on when this document was written. It was published in September, three months before the Council closed on December the 8th. Paul VI was intimately involved in the Council's deliberations and discussions. He knew the purpose of the Council better than any other, and that purpose was a renewal, not a reformation of the Church. The intent was to bring the treasures of the Church, her doctrines and teachings, the Mass and the sacraments, and most especially Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, to a world that desperately needed saving. And it was the Eucharist, Jesus Christ in the flesh, that both Vatican II and Paul VI wanted to showcase as the source and summit of not only the Catholic faith, but also the whole of human experience. Only through physical reception and adoration of Christ can we be saved, have our broken nature healed, and fulfill our true destiny as humans made in the image and likeness of God. Paul VI could see the danger posed by the lack of belief in the real presence. The actions of the bishops in the Low Countries, the publication of their Dutch catechism, weren't the cause, they were symptoms of a larger problem, a tidal wave of unbelief that threatened to wash away the foundations of the faith in the West. But while this was a dire situation, it wasn't the first time it had happened. In paragraph 52 of Mysterium Fidei, Pope Paul VI quotes his predecessor, Gregory VII, detailing what the 11th century Pope had done to fight disbelief in the real presence in his day. 900 years before, Gregory had required a heretic who denied Christ was truly present in the Eucharist to swear the following oath to be readmitted to the Church. I believe in my heart and openly profess that the bread and wine that are placed on the altar are, through the mystery of the sacred prayer and the words of the Redeemer, substantially changed into the true and proper and life-giving flesh and blood of Jesus Christ our Lord, and that after the consecration, they are the true body of Christ, which was born of the Virgin and which hung on the cross as an offering for the salvation of the world and the true blood of Christ, which flows from his side, and not just as a sign and by reason of the power of the sacrament, but in the very truth and reality of their substance and in what is proper to their nature. Now, we could all take that oath, at least I hope we could, but could those whose minds have been malformed by the Dutch Catechism and the heretical teachings of the bishops who commissioned it? Probably not. They would be like the followers of Christ in the sixth chapter of John, who when presented with the Eucharistic discourse said, that saying is hard and who can hear it? And went away and walked no more with him. Today, some polls suggest over two-thirds of Catholics could not take that oath, or would not if they were left to their own consciences. 70% of Catholics reject the Church's clear, unambiguous, ancient, and well-attested doctrine. Not an opinion, not one of a number of different options, not just a way of looking at it that's as good as the others, but a doctrine, a teaching that must be held in order to be part of the Catholic faith and be saved. 70% reject the real presence of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. Probably the situation wasn't as bad in Paul VI's day, but it was bad enough, and it is all but certain this holy and wise man could see the direction the winds were blowing. He knew that he had to do something to arrest the decline in belief in the real presence. Powerfully presenting the doctrine itself was the first step, but he didn't stop there. He knew, lex credendi, lex orandi, as goes belief, so does the liturgy. And so Mysterium Fidei directly exhorted the people to receive on the tongue and kneeling by saying, we are not saying this with any thought of effecting a change in the manner of keeping the Eucharist and of receiving Holy Communion that has been laid down by subsequent ecclesiastical laws still in force. 
And what was that manner described by law? Why, it was receiving the Eucharist kneeling and on the tongue, not in the hand and standing. Such a posture the Pope feared damaged faith in the real presence, made people think they were just receiving some bread and wine, not the body, blood, soul, and divinity, whole and entire, really, truly, and substantially present in the Eucharist under the appearance of bread and wine. He made this explicit when he quoted from one of the most respected fathers of the church in paragraph 55. As St. Augustine says, it was in his flesh that Christ walked among us, and it is his flesh that he has given us to eat for our salvation, but no one eats of this flesh without having first adored it. And not only do we not sin in thus adoring it, but we would be sinning if we did not do so. And how do we adore? We adore by treating something with respect and reverence, not taking it into our dirty hands and mauling it like a cookie. We adore historically by kneeling before God, by lowering ourselves in humble recognition of the one who humbled himself infinitely in deigning to come down to earth from heaven and be made incarnate in the flesh of man. And before anyone says, kneeling is old-fashioned, medieval, and that we shouldn't do it anymore when it comes to the Eucharist, let me quote from a 1980 instruction from the Sacred Congregation for the Sacraments and Divine Worship called Inestimable Donum, the Inestimable Gift. That refers to the Eucharist, and the document reads, The Church has always required from the faithful respect and reverence for the Eucharist at the moment of receiving it. When the faithful communicate kneeling, no other sign of reverence toward the Blessed Sacrament is required, since kneeling itself is a sign of adoration. 1980. Reagan was running against Carter. Most of you remember that. Many of you probably voted in the election. This isn't some ancient teaching the church did away with a long time ago, is what I'm saying. Things have changed in the last 50 years. The infamous Dutch catechism explicitly advanced Eucharistic heresy. That isn't the case today. Today, Western priests and bishops don't preach heresy openly. But there is something in many ways far worse. An open heresy can be responded to, preached against, corrected, challenged, and called out. But what we have today is a twofold heresy. A heresy of silence and a heresy of practice. The heresy of silence is simple. The realities of the Eucharist, so eloquently described by Pope Paul VI and Mysterium Fidei, are rarely, if ever, mentioned from the pulpit or from chanceries or the headquarters of national bishops' conferences. They do not say anything wrong about the Eucharist because they don't really say anything at all. But acta non verba, as we have said before, actions speak louder than words, especially when those words are silence. The heresy of practice is where the actions of the faithful, both priests and laity, are not in accord with the awesome reality of the Eucharist. They act as if they do not believe in the sacredness of the Eucharist, as if it is not really, truly and substantially the body, blood, soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. This heresy of practice includes things like the laity casually handling the Eucharist without any real necessity, consecrated vessels not being appropriately cleansed of particles of the host after Holy Communion, people giving no sign of adoration as they go up to receive, and yes, of course, the practice itself of communion in the hand. <sighs> but it's clear, after reading Mysterium Fidei, blame for the heresy of silence cannot be lain at the feet of Pope Paul VI. And it's also clear, once we study the rest of his efforts to prevent communion in the hand and other irreverence towards the Eucharist, he is not only innocent of the heresy of practice, but actively fought against it. And yet, despite all this, many people still want to spread lies about him and say he not only agreed with, but promoted communion in the hand. Who were these people? Well, there are two groups, both of them agents of darkness, and they find themselves unlikely allies. On one side, are people who want to change the church's practice when it comes to reception of the Eucharist, and they find their false version of Paul VI, the Pope who pushed communion in the hand, to be useful. 
They will cherry-pick from his history, gloss over some parts, emphasize others, obfuscate and use deceptive language to paint the Pope as a man who wanted to change the teaching of the Church. The other group do exactly the same, but for different reasons. These are the people who, rightly, aren't happy with the changes that happened after Vatican II. But instead of working quietly, patiently and loyally to right the boat to turn the bark of Peter around, they've instead chosen to jump ship, to say the one and only Ark is leaking and scuppered. Of course, it's hard to blame them. It takes a long time to turn around a ship as big as the church, and plenty of the controls in the wheelhouse are still manned by useful idiots from the Church of Nice, taking their ultimate orders not from the captain of the ship, but from pirates. But that doesn't excuse them. There are no excuses for telling lies about the Pope, about what the documents of the council say, in order to make it and he look worse than they are, merely to push your own agenda. Even if that agenda is, at its heart, a noble but misguided attempt to undo the damage. People have got to understand who the enemy is here. It is Satan. He is the prince of this world and he traffics in lies. The only way to defeat Satan is with the light of truth, not a shadowy obfuscation that hides what really went on. Every attempt to make Paul VI out to be the villain, when he was in truth a valiant hero who fought against communion in the hand, but was hampered by agents of darkness within his own ranks, is not only a lie, but actively weakens the body of Christ by dividing its members. You should stand firm with Peter and resist any attempt to malign this Pope by accusing him of something that is not only false, but the exact opposite of what happened. Because writing Mysterium Fidei wasn't the only thing Pope Paul VI did to fight communion in the hand. In fact, it was just the first thing. There's a lot of evidence to get to, but my team and I are confident we can do it. As you know, I don't like asking for your financial support. I always want a win-win situation whenever possible. Well, I've got a way for you to help this apostolate without you having to do anything you're not already doing. Everybody shops on Amazon. I've developed an affiliate relationship with Amazon. When you visit cantankerouscatholic.com and click on the episodes page, blog page, or about the show page, on the right-hand side of the page you'll see Amazon ads for Catholic books and merchandise. There's no price difference from Amazon's site, but if you click on something you're interested in and buy it, Amazon will pay me a small commission just for you clicking on that ad. It doesn't stop there either. Anytime you're on Amazon and find things you want to buy, send me the link to the items and I'll send you another link to click when you're ready to buy. You won't pay a dime more for the item, but Amazon will pay me a commission. That way you can help to financially support this apostolate just by doing what you were going to do anyway. Remember, Visit the episodes, blog, and about the show pages to find Catholic books and merchandise, and send me links to other things you want to buy on Amazon, and I'll send you links that will pay this apostle at a small commission. And I thank you in advance for your support. The Catholic Church is 2,000 years old. A lot of wisdom is gained over two millennia. Each week we'll share some of that wisdom with a Catholic quote. So here's this week's Catholic quote. This week's Catholic quote is from Pope St. John Paul the Great. He said, Do not be afraid to be saints. Follow Jesus Christ who is the source of freedom and light. Be open to the Lord so that he may lighten all your ways. 
I believe a really great way to teach the faith is through stories, parables, and anecdotes. So here's today's story. In 1834, the Ursuline Convent in Charlestown, Massachusetts, was set on fire by some anti-Catholic fanatics in the town. The sisters and pupils were aroused from their sleep by the shouting and destruction taking place outside. Despite the sisters' appeals, the mob was intent on plundering the church. One of them went to the high altar, broke open the tabernacle, and placed all of the consecrated hosts in his pocket. Then he went to the tavern and, surrounded by his evil-minded companions, began to brag about what he'd done. While spewing his blasphemies, he suddenly noticed a Catholic looking at him with horror. Just for spite, the arrogant wicked man took several hosts from his pocket and held them high for the Catholic to see them, and sneered, Here, behold your God. Now you don't have to go to your church anymore to find him. The Catholic, dumbfounded, stood unmoved. What should he do? But God's vengeance had already come for the blasphemer. At that instant, he turned deadly pale and, feeling suddenly seized with sickness, hurried from the room. When he didn't return in a half hour, his evil-minded companions became afraid for him. They found him dead on the floor in another room. God will have his vengeance on all who hate him sooner or later. But he's very patient so we can all have the chance to repent. We usually show our hatred for him in a less dramatic way than the man in this story, because we do so through mortal sin. In fact, our hatred may be greater than his because we know what we're doing. Hey, six-pack warriors, before you leave this episode, be sure to go to my show notes and click on the subscribe link. Just pick Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Amazon Music, whichever one you want to subscribe through. You don't have to subscribe to hear the show, but the more subscribers there are, the more these platforms will make the cantankerous Catholic known to Catholics looking for good podcasts. And please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use. The more reviews, the more the show gets shown to Catholics looking for good podcasts. And I thank you. This has been The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Thanks for subscribing, and be sure to visit cantankerouscatholic.com to get your free copy of Joe's popular book, The Best of What We Believe, Why We Believe It.